How are you going to meet the in-person requirement? Are you going to fly providers into that state so that they can have that in-person interaction? Are you going to set up like a command base within certain states that you have a large patient population? That's attorney Sunny Levine. She specializes in health tech regulatory compliance. Later, we'll hear more from her on how she will guide telemedicine companies through the end of the public health emergency. You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll hear more from attorney Sunny Levine. But first up, let's talk about the impacts of errors in health records and what can be done about it. About 250,000 people die each year from injuries in medical care. These can be adverse drug events or transfusion errors. Maybe a nurse gave the wrong medicine or didn't know about an allergy or any number of other reasons. But what underlies it all is poor communication. Accurately exchanging patient information, like medicines or symptoms, between caregivers is known as a patient handoff. And this is a major weak point in healthcare. Handoffs can be susceptible to errors for a variety of reasons, like language barriers or inadequate documentation. I mean, they spend 35% of their time documenting patient data. That can cause some burnout. Saba Aranjavia is a physician at Penn Medicine and the founder and CEO of CareAlign, a tool that helps facilitate handoffs within an electronic health record, or EHR. She sat down with Fierce Healthcare's Anastasia Gledkovskia to talk about how to address this crisis. Thank you so much for being here. This is, you know, a really interesting topic. It's a very pervasive problem, um, medical errors. I guess a good place to start would be talking about patient handoffs and what they are and the consequences of a handoff gone bad. Sure. Well, I think high level, I guess a good place to start is that medicine has changed over the last couple of decades where you no longer have one person who knows everything about a patient or even in the hospital, you don't have one person who's staying in the hospital for 72 hours straight like we used to do. There's a lot more shift work. We have to hand off the care of our patients to each other frequently. There are a lot of different types of handoffs. They can be shift work. Uh, meaning day shift to night shift. It can be week team, the week team to the weekend team, um, or it can be moving a patient from one floor to another. All of those require handoffs and care uh, from one person or one team to another. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just really challenging because patients have a lot of things going on and we hold a lot of that information in our head or in the EHR. And we need to be able to effectively share that information with the oncoming provider so they know how to take care of patients our patients the same way that we would have. So to just dive a little deeper into what a typical documentation workflow might look like, say, inside a hospital, can you talk about, you know, how these care teams coordinate this care? I know you mentioned EHR, electronic health record system. Um, can you talk about, you know, paper and electronic documentation? Yeah, absolutely. So documentation meaning where we write in a legal record the progress note for the day in the hospital happens in the electronic health record. And um, 
there's been an incredible investment in EHRs, uh, electronic health records, in the last couple of decades uh, across the the country. And there is this assumption, people think that they do everything for clinical teams, but they actually do not. So from, on a minute to minute, hour to hour basis, we are using a combination of different things to stay on the same page with each other um, from email to secure text messaging to whiteboards are still used everywhere to printed lists, to sticky notes, to in-person huddles, to now Teams huddles. Uh, but basically, the way teams are trying to stay on the same page with each other is extremely fragmented and piecemeal across a lot of different uh, workflows. And there's it's really hard to have one view of what's the most updated information for a patient. Uh, and the other thing I think worth mentioning is the EHR. People think everything should be in the EHR, but uh, it's actually completely impractical for the EHR to be our our main source of up-to-date information throughout a hospital admission because there is just an inordinate amount of information in the EHR and it's growing exponentially. Uh, so if I could take if I could take a couple minutes to share, we we've actually researched this. We looked in our large quaternary care health system, which has you know seven different hospitals, hundreds of outpatient clinics. Uh, we looked at every single note written in our electronic health record over the last six years, which is over 100 million notes. Wow. And using natural language processing, we wanted to quantify how much text that was. And I'm saying narrative text, so words and notes, uh, not including vitals and labs and all these other results and, and studies that we have to also incorporate into our decision making. So just looking at narrative text in over 100 million notes, we had over 33 billion words and 192 billion characters in six years in one health system. And for context, all of English Wikipedia in all time is 24 billion words, sorry, 24 billion characters. So that means in one health system in one year, we generate more text than in all of Wikipedia in all time. (laughs) That's unbelievable. I mean, that sounds like problematic if it's not the best solution to store everything in EHR, but also, like you said, everything is so piecemeal. You know, you have sticky notes, you have whiteboards. What is like the perfect happy medium? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think anyone has solved the problem, but I do think that we need tools designed specifically for patient-centered team-based workflow. Um, all of the things in the EHR, the EHR is in a lot of really great things, and their workflows really dive deep into specific specialties and specific disciplines. So cardiology or nursing or therapy, but they don't give you a holistic view of what all the different people are doing for a patient. So if we're not trying to completely eliminate paper, how does this work? Like at the end of the day, does do those notes get inputted into a, like a shared Google Doc situation in the EHR? Oh, I wish, uh, but no. <laughs> um, yeah, there isn't a, there isn't really a concept of collaborative documentation in the EHR. There are some tools for teams, but they're not shared across teams, and even that is dependent on the EHR. So, uh, the top two or three uh, most frequently used EHRs do have a tool like that, but all of the others don't. Um, I think that you need to have applications that work across these different disciplines, but do exactly what you described as a Google Doc-like experience. 
um, where you have an iterative, collaborative care planning workspace that multiple different disciplines can access. And importantly, that can work across care settings. Um, one of the big challenges with how things work in EHRs right now is that they are all encounter-based. So, you know, it's all structured around billing in a fee-for-service model where, you know, you have an admission or you have a visit or you have, um, you know, a home care visit. But as care has changed over the last several years, especially in terms of value-based models and quality-focused models, so what we end up doing in the HRs is writing a separate document every single time we see someone um, and then putting it together is really hard. I think for, for people who aren't actually practicing clinicians, it's really hard to think about. But imagine if every single meeting you had for a particular project, you like filed a report for every update and every person who was at that meeting filed their own report. And then the person in charge of the project had to sit there and read all of the different updates from all of the different people mm. from all of the different meetings and then make life and death decisions on it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That seems incredibly inefficient. I mean, why do you think EHR systems, I've got to assume that Epic, Cerner, all the big ones, they at least have touch points with providers to know about some of these failures and, and some of the needs um, that you're talking about. Why do you think that the systems aren't updating quickly enough when, like you said, care has changed over the past couple of years and it's pretty evident that just like a encounter-based format is is not efficient? I think oftentimes there's a, you know, there's not necessarily the best alignment between all of the different stakeholders that the EHRs are trying to serve. Um, and so they end up focusing a lot on the business of healthcare, right? How mm-hmm. do we code? How do we bill? How do we make sure that the PL looks like we want it to look mm-hmm. for a healthcare organization? And um, it makes it hard then to focus on the usability and the workflow and the care delivery side of things. So I know you you help build Caroline. Um, are you advocating for other health systems to build something internally, perhaps? Is that feasible or is that really resource intensive? I would say yes and yes. So what I'd love to see is that health systems adopt more collaborative workflow tools like Caroline, uh, whether they build it like we did at Penn or use what we've built. Either one is fine, but I do think we need more tools like it. Other industries have tools that they use. It's called project management tools like Asana or Monday. Um, they are built to make sure that everyone on the team knows what everyone is doing and things don't fall through the cracks. It feels very uh, simple when you say it. Uh, and that's what we need in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it seems like I'm familiar with Monday and I can see how it'd be really helpful, but I'm sure there are a lot of privacy considerations that would go into a provider thinking about using something like that. Absolutely. I mean, that's why oftentimes you end up building it like we did to make sure that, you know, we're doing things the right way from privacy and compliance perspectives. How can providers help identify points of failure in communication or in handoffs? Like what would be the first uh, step or a starting point? Well, that is a really good question. I think part of the challenge uh, with that specific question is I think people don't, they often don't recognize what these errors and near misses are, the vast, if you think of the iceberg analogy, the vast majority of errors and near misses are the iceberg under the water. People don't even realize it. So, you know, if I could do anything, it would be to get people to start thinking about 
all of the near misses and errors that happen and the things that often we accept as a status quo, like delays or misunderstandings but that really we shouldn't, to start thinking of technology as we expecting from technology and healthcare, the kind of usability and workflow improvements that we see in the rest of our lives. I think there needs to be a whole change in how people think about how we can work together because they're just like, oh, we can get this whiteboard that has a template already printed onto it so it's easier for us to write it. It's like, why are we looking at whiteboards mm-hmm. at all? Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I guess, are there any common failures that come to mind that you could share with our listeners so they know what to be on the lookout for if they're beginning to recognize that they have a problem? Yeah, I think one of the biggest areas right now is discharge planning, right? Hospitals are really under pressure with volume um, and patient flow and uh, longer and longer lengths of stay since COVID. So when we think about coordinating discharges, it is a very interdisciplinary process and there is no standardized way to do it. And it's different for every patient. Um, I'll give you an example. There, a colleague was just telling me that at their hospital, they try to coordinate everything by text. She got over 120 text messages in five hours. Think about how many interruptions that is while she's trying to round and talk to patients and, Mm -hmm. you know, tell someone that they have a new diagnosis of a terminal illness. It's just not tenable. Having a unified way to be able to coordinate and get everyone on the same page could be really helpful there. Some places are trying to do things in their EHRs, but the problem is it takes months to get anything changed in your EHR. And for something like this, you need it to be rapid. Right. Iteration, you know, mm-hmm. and it needs to be something that I can access at the bedside when I'm talking to the patient and they tell me that they have trouble going up the steps. So I need to adjust my planning. I need to be able to update that right then, not have to write it on paper to then update it later in the EHR when it gets to a computer. I'm wondering, in terms of safety culture, accurate handoffs, is this something that clinical teams should be responsible for? Or is this like a leadership thing, something that should be coming from the top down? That is a great question. It has to be both. I think all too often, I was just talking about this with colleagues, that a lot of QI work is put, ends up falling on the shoulders of clinicians without the appropriate support from administration. And the reality is that clinicians have no say in the tools they use in hospitals. So as we were just talking about, we need technology to support what people are doing. So it has to be a partnership between clinicians saying, here's a way we can design this process and administration saying, okay, we will support either developing our own tech to support this or bringing in outside tech to help support this process. So it has to be shared. I think that's a really smart place to end for this conversation. So thank you so much. This is really insightful and um, hopefully is of value to our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Saba Aranjavia and Anastasia Gledkovskia. Next, we'll hear more from Sunny Levine on the health tech industry. The Trump administration announced the COVID-19 public health emergency in January of 2020. Telehealth became the new normal, the way millions of Americans received health care. One corner of virtual care that boomed was telepsychiatry. Before the pandemic, the Ryan Haight Act required practitioners to conduct at least one face-to-face evaluation before they could prescribe medications. The public health emergency suspended the Riot Haight Act. Virtual providers were given more flexibility. 
For the past three years, they could prescribe medications without ever meeting a patient face-to-face. Three years after the emergency was declared, the Biden administration announced that it will end on May 11th. The suspension of the Riot Hate Act will be lifted. In 2008, the Drug Enforcement Agency was mandated by Congress to create a special registration process that would allow remote practitioners to prescribe controlled substances. But they never followed through on that. And now, organizations like the American Telemedicine Association are demanding they follow through. The gist? May 11 could bring a crisis for thousands of Americans who are prescribed controlled substances remotely. Attorney Sunny Levine specializes in the law of health tech regulatory compliance. Sunny spoke with Annie Berkey about how she will guide telemedicine companies through the end of the public health emergency and what she sees for the future of the industry. Well, Sunny, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. So this long-awaited announcement has come. The public health emergency is officially in the winding down period after three long years. Was there any part of this announcement or how this announcement came about that surprised you? Yeah, so we have been operating on three-month, you know, 90-day increments. Usually at the last moment, we received notification that the PHE, the public health emergency related to COVID-19, has been extended. The part of this most recent announcement that's different is that it's not a 90-day period, but instead the administration added on an additional month. So instead of April 11th, where it would normally send to expire, it is now ending on May 11th. That's the main surprise that we saw with the most recent renewal. And do you think that was just a matter of kindness of realizing that there have been a lot of shifts in the system and a lot of those things are going to have to be undone and it's not going to happen overnight? Yeah, I think that's exactly what this additional, you know, bit of more of a fluff period. There are so many things that hinged on the duration of the PHE. So to end that will take, you know, I think the administration realizes more than just 90 days, it's going to take a bit longer. So yeah, a bit of grace in allowing for every agency, government, and you know, most private um, companies that are relying on these extensions and waivers to have a bit more time to adjust to the post-COVID, post-waiver period. And of course, like I think it's worth mentioning that we are talking about like a little tiny niche of this world because a lot is changing really fast. Like Medicare is going to have to reimagine a lot of different things. How some people in America get vaccines is going to be different. But we are mostly talking about telepsychiatry. And um, last time we spoke, we talked about the two areas of care that are going to be potentially affected. Um, One, remote prescribing of stimulants and remote treatment of opioid use disorder. Can you talk about how you imagine the administration was considering these two use cases of the PHE? So providers that are DA registered were able to and are currently able to prescribe Schedule 3 through 6 controlled substances without having to actually see the patient in person, which allowed for much more access to care um, with stimulants, largely prescribed Adderall and other medications related to ADHD. And my focus area is largely in the substance use disorder treatment space. You prescribe epimorphine, which is a Schedule three controlled substance, and it is used to help stave off some of the effects of opioid use disorder, the cravings, it mimics the effects that uh, an opioid would have on the brain and also works as a blocker for some of the opioid uh, sensors. So this medication is clinically indicated and 
one of the leading ways to treat you know, the ongoing opioid epidemic. During the PAG, the DA released a waiver, issued a waiver, which allowed prescribers to prescribe buprenorphine without that in-person interaction that would normally be required. And even further, allowed it to be prescribed not only through this real-time audio-video synchronous interaction like what we're having right now, but instead audio only, so through a phone interaction with the patient. Yeah, and just to, to clarify for people, let's say we get to May 11th. The DEA doesn't come out with anything. Congress doesn't push anything through. It's almost like imagining like today the public health emergency were to end. What would that mean for patients receiving that treatment? If that does happen, then technically providers would be out of compliance with federal law, um, namely the Ryan Height Act or RHA. Um, that is a part of the Controlled Substances Act, a federal law that regulates controlled substance prescribing um, on the federal level. And under that law, that's what set forth the in-person requirements. So needing to see the provider, needing to see the patient at least one time before they issue a prescription for a controlled substance. So I just want to get like a brief overview of the situation because we have a lot of different laws that are interacting right now, a lot of things that are yet to be determined, a lot of questions that people have. Um, And as I mentioned to you earlier, I I spoke with someone recently at the Connected Health Initiative who said that lawyers are going to be buying sailboats (laughs) with everything that's going on right now. So I think that speaks to the level of anxiety and also close reading that is taking place. First, just to start. The Ryan Height Act will go back into effect and controlled substances will no longer be prescribed via telemedicine if the public health exemption were to end as it is today. Right. So the Ryan Height Act, the leading federal legislation that regulates uh, controlled substance prescribing via telemedicine, there are seven exceptions to the Ryan Height Act. They're very limited, though. For instance, the patient would have to be physically present at a DEA registered facility, which is usually like a hospital. Or the patient would have to be physically present with another DA registered practitioner. So the the current exceptions that are part of the Ryan Height Act, they really don't apply in a direct to consumer setting that is currently you know, the the way that we're seeing the prescription of controlled substances, at least during the public health emergency. And there was, my understanding is that there was a mandate in 2008 for the DEA to create some kind of special registration process for certain providers. We were supposed to hear about that in January. I mean, we were supposed to maybe have something about it over the last 15 years. What do we get? So yeah, DEA, and we were waiting on these proposed rules that will create a special telemedicine registration. So one of the exceptions to the Ryan Hyde Act, one of the seven exceptions, is that the DA would create this special telemedicine registry. However, we, as you mentioned, you know, we've waited for a while now. Each time there's a deadline, we, we still haven't seen the actual proposed rule. So we're not quite sure what this registration will look like. And um, we don't know if it will relate to all prescribed of controlled substances, which it really should, or if it's going to be something more limited and only apply to certain categories of controlled substance. So we're waiting to see. Can you talk a little bit about the other patients that would be affected? Is it true that um, patients that are prescribed testosterone for transitioning would not be able to access that medication if they are prescribed remotely? Their controlled substances are, you know, varying. They, they're used to treat many types of, of conditions um, and disease states. And so blocking access to controlled substances generally, this very broad law, the Ryan Hyde Act, 
It doesn't differentiate what is it being used for, what schedule of controlled substance, these nuances that are actually really important that should be taken into account. Instead, it's just all controlled substances and you need this in person. So yes, if May 11th comes and goes and we don't see any if, you know, any changes from DEA, any legislation that goes through a special registration process, then access to hormone, testosterone definitely will will be blocked. Um, the in-person interaction again would go into place. So if somebody is relying on an out-of-state provider that is the person that has been providing them with this treatment, then they would need to find a way to meet with that provider in person, which is not an easy proposition for either the provider or the patient. Yeah, that's daunting. I spoke with someone from the American Telehealth or Telemedicine Association, and they said that what they are suggesting for prescribers and for providers is contingency plans. And are you recommending similar things to your clients to create plans in case May 11th comes around and we don't have something? We're advising our clients in a few ways to plan for. If there's no changes, no regulatory uh, easement for those that are prescribing controlled substances remotely um, in a few areas. So one, how are you going to meet the in-person requirement? Are you going to set up like a command base within certain states that you have a large patient population. Are you going to fly providers into that state so that they can have that in-person interaction? So state and federal law both regulate controlled substance prescribing. Under the Controlled Substances Act, the federal law, whatever is more restrictive, state or federal law will control. So some states have more restrictive requirements even than the federal Ryan Height Act and state that a provider needs to have an in-person exam with the patient once every 12 months. So for example, Alabama recently um, enacted a law last summer stating that a provider needed to have an in-person exam with the patient once every 12 months. So although the Ryan Height Act would technically be um, satisfied by having just one in-person exam with the patient, you still need to follow the more restrictive laws. So in that case, some of our clients flew providers to Alabama and set up this type of command pose in order to ensure that they would meet their requirements. So that was kind of the beta testing, right, in one state, which you could later see how we can implement that in other states in a post-waiver atmosphere. That's one of the areas is how to meet the in-person exam. Another uh, onerous requirement that DEA um, has under the Controlled Substances Act is state registration. So the practitioner needs to, to register with the DEA in each state they prescribe controlled substances to patients in. And in order to register with the DA at each state, you need to show a physical presence, a physical location that a DA agent can actually visit and ensure that that's an actual location that you can prescribe it. And so for a telehealth provider that doesn't have a brick and mortar location, this obviously presents an issue for them. So one thing that we've been advising clients on are get this in-state presence now try to meet this requirement. We don't know what the special registration will entail. Would it allow you know, to, would this also accomplish the purposes for the state-by-state registration or not? So let's just get your ducks in the line and try to register a physical location in each state that you prescribe it now. Well, thank you for wandering into the weeds with me. I appreciate that. And I mean, if we're going to stay in these weeds for a few more minutes, I would like to talk about the humble telephone. What do you think telephonic services are going to become with the current state of the PHE and where it's set to end? It's a great question. Uh, the humble telephone, people don't give it enough credit. Um, it should, and it's especially important for rural patients because 
Oftentimes, they don't have access to broadband or high-speed broadband communications because they are in rural areas. Hopefully, we see a bit of an uptick on the ability to provide services via audio only is the term that we use in the industry. So via audio only, that telephone only without the video component. Medicare has noted that they will reimburse certain services um, relating to substance use disorder treatment when provided via audio only. This isn't an all-inclusive and it's very, it's a limited coverage. You have to say why you couldn't provide via real-time audio video. But nonetheless, it does show some of the value and uh, Medicare expressing that there is value in the audio-only modality. So we'll see what happens. Um, we see a lot of states have changed their laws during COVID, um, at least for at least temporarily changed their laws to include audio only as an acceptable treatment modality for telehealth. And um, we'll see if that stays or if they'll roll that back and make it some sort of yes, but only if you can't provide it via real-time audio visual, similar to how Medicare has has used it. One of the areas where I've seen the language be a little bit foggy um, with the recent announcement was a permanent change stating that Medicare patients can receive telehealth services in their home. Do you think there's going to be more guidance about whether that change literally means in the home or just in a non-medical setting? Like, let's say I'm on the phone with a telehealth provider and then I need to take my kid to school. Can I take that phone into the car? Yeah. Under the CAA, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, this was an extension for one of the temporary waivers that Medicare had issued during the PHE. But with the legislation, with the CAA, this is a permanent change, at least until 2024. These changes are to the telehealth benefits. So providing covered services via telehealth. And one of the changes was the originating site. Um, the originating site means where the patient is physically located at the time of the telehealth consult. There's a geographic aspect to it, but there's also a where are they sitting? Are they at their you know, home or in a facility or where are they located? Generally, how we see this interpreted, meaning at home doesn't actually mean the patient's house, but would mean where, you know, if there's a safe, secure location, meaning it's not subject to confidentiality breaches and it's secured enough that a patient can transfer confidential and PHI, protected health information to their provider. Um, generally, that would also qualify and be acceptable with certain caveats. So not a Starbucks, but maybe a car in a relatively empty parking lot. Right, right. To wrap this up, I would love to like take a step back and look at these last three years of healthcare regulations. What do you think the shakeout of the PHE reveals about the value of different communication modalities in healthcare? I think that telehealth has proven its its value. I think before patients were a bit more hesitant to use telehealth, I think it's proven itself as a viable way of delivering healthcare. Um, and you'll see by the utilization rates and the, the, you know, the data really backs that up. Um, people are becoming more comfortable with it, um, both providers and patients. And so I think it's shown that telehealth is here to stay, especially as technology continues to evolve and improve. We'll see new uses of telehealth to make it even, you know, reaching even more vulnerable patients and those that are at, typically that don't have access to healthcare. So I think there's, it's really shown that is a viable um, a benefit. I think it's with this remote prescribing issue. Um, a lot of the, the fear of you know, why these laws came into place, they haven't panned out during the pandemic. Uh, we haven't seen this vast over prescribing and 
And it's seen a lot of the fears that really, you know, caused these rules to be enacted in the first place. Another major change that we didn't bring up, but is very a major change um, with the CAA 2023 is the removal of the X waiver. The X waiver is what was previously required in order to prescribe buprenorphine for substance use disorder. It was a process that a practitioner would have to apply for in addition to all the other requirements we already talked about. And it would also cap the number of patients the, the provider could treat at one time. So 30 patients, 100 patients, or 275 patients at a time. With the removal, I think during COVID, they saw that this is a very positive trend. We're seeing how telehealth is being at, you know, used as a successful way to at least help try to combat the ongoing opioid epidemic. We need to continue this on, increase access. They're removing the X waiver, I think, is also part of you know, what we've seen with the trends of let's get rid of some of these barriers that we previously thought were going to cause this catastrophic whatever meltdown, but instead it really didn't pan out. And instead it, we're seeing an improvement, at least more access for patients and you know, the ability to use different types of modalities and treatment methods to combat these issues that have been ongoing. Well, thank you for clarifying that. And um, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate you really exploring all these different avenues for me. There's still a lot to be determined. So um, I hope this is not the last time we speak with you. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, Annie. That was great. That was attorney Sunny Levine and Annie Berkey. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss private equity in healthcare, and we'll hear from one person on how her lived experience is motivating her to improve care for a diverse group of people. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.